Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Amazon is one of the world's largest and most powerful companies, yet one of the engines of its might is largely invisible to customers, its vast network of millions of third-party sellers. In today's episode, we're going to talk with an expert who spent a good amount of time looking at the experience of the people operating the small businesses that power Amazon's global expansion. My name is Moira Weigel, and I'm an assistant professor of communication studies at Northeastern University. Maura, I'm so excited to talk to you today about a report that you've done for Data and Society, Amazon's trickle-down monopoly, third-party sellers, and the transformation of small business. So you've taken a look at the role of third-party sellers on uh, Amazon's platform uh, and kind of done a deep dive, talked to a lot of them as well. I want to ask you just about your methodology before we start. How, How did you go about doing this research? I got fascinated by Amazon's marketplace at a sort of fortuitous time. It was right before the pandemic and right at the beginning of the relatively early in the U.S.-China trade war. Uh, And so, you know, a lot of things were happening and changing, which I think is always uh, an interesting time to look at a particular site. In terms of how I found the actual folks I spoke to, that was a real learning process and actually maybe is interesting to talk about for a moment. Initially, I'd written a book in the past. I published a book in 2020 uh, with Ben Tarnoff, who's a co-founder of Logic Magazine, uh, which I edited just until this last January. We've just handed it to new editors. But we had done a lot of anonymous interviews with employees at tech companies, um, you know, at the big ones, everything. In that book, we talked to everybody from you know, a founder whose company was bought by one of the big companies to a Google engineer to a cafeteria worker and like an in-house massage therapist is one of my favorites, actually. But in the past, you know, I thought if I to learn about the tech companies, I would go uh, find people from inside who were willing to talk to me anonymously. You know, I did do I did speak to a number of Amazonians and former Amazonians in doing this research but after doing a couple engineer interviews for a couple reasons I decided that wasn't that wasn't the way I wanted to go to understand the marketplace. First, of course, engineers are breaking their NDA to talk to me and it's sort of complicated to talk to people who currently work for Amazon. That makes it difficult to recruit a robust uh any kind of random sample at all really. Um but more more importantly, you know, engineers Brilliant engineers are very focused on one particular little piece of the marketplace, right? So an engineer could explain to me how their widget that they developed uh, to deter, let's say, determine what shows up in search in different countries, how that worked. Uh, But I quickly realized that to get a more global view, uh, it actually might be better to go to these third parties who, of course, are not NDA'd and currently working for Amazon and who also are hustling this really complicated, sprawling system every day. I think there's a real sense that like the single mom reselling stuff she buys for cheap in Target's across North Carolina has a better understanding of certain global dynamics in the marketplace than the engineer in Seattle does. Uh, That, of course, is sort of politically compelling or appealing to me, too. I believe in 
telling the stories of technology through the people who use it. And so what was interesting then is I thought, okay, this will be easy. I'll go find some third-party sellers to talk to. Um, I first tried a quantitative approach where with a friend, Francis Tsung, we scraped five or 10,000 sellers' contact information, tried to contact them at random. That didn't work at all uh, for reasons I'd be happy to elaborate on. Uh, but then ultimately realized, so realized that the community is actually very, very secretive and private and hard to get into. Um, and so it took some time. Ultimately, what happened is I got to know a few kind of gatekeepers in the community who then made personal introductions. And I think probably because sellers are so isolated and secretive in a lot of instances, once people trusted me, I found that actually they were very voluble. <laughs> and willing and eager to talk. And some of them joked with me that I became their Amazon therapist or someone just uh, told me that his 2023 resolution was to complain less to me about Amazon over Signal. But anyway, I could elaborate more on any of that if it's interesting, but I basically found a couple different kinds of gatekeepers and then just tried to develop a rolling sample by asking for introductions. And you know, when I'd finish an interview, I'd ask if people knew other people in the community and built up the population that way. But it took months. It was uh, much more challenging than I expected at first. Well, you end up with a, a very compelling portrait of the lives of these individuals. Um, and I suppose that they're the people essentially living within the kind of economic dynamics, the game dynamics that Amazon's created for them. You call them the ambivalent realities of building a small business under the conditions that Amazon has created and controls. Uh, one of the things I like about this report is that you kind of give us a history of mm -hmm. how those dynamics have evolved. There are kind of three periods, the old days, the wild west, the jungle. Can you kind of just give us that potted history? Take us through each period. What changed between those periods and why are these periods, you know, uh, of course, reliant on language that, of course, is sort of colonial? Yeah. Thanks for the question. So when I finally got people to talk to me, right, I started interviewing people. And after you speak to, you know, a dozen, a couple dozen people, you start to realize, or I started to realize that I was hearing certain stories or versions of certain stories again and again, uh, what a social scientist might call saturation, you know, what we call saturation. Um, and I realized, and it took some time, you know, it took me a long time, actually, to just literally understand how all sorts of things about the marketplace work, uh, because it's very complicated. It's not written down anywhere. <laughs> and I felt for a, a few months, really beginning this research that I was just learning all the lingo and the different systems and programs and so on. But over time, as I interviewed more and more people, all of whom had been active, you know, had slightly had their own personal stories and have been active in different, in different time periods and, and Amazon eras, I started to recognize that there were a few narratives that recurred and even like specific phrases that recurred, uh, which you just alluded to, Justin. So I noticed, at least among the English speakers, and I did interview a cohort of Mandarin speakers, and I'm actually still conducting interviews with Chinese Amazon merchants now, but among the English speakers, I repeatedly heard these three phrases of the old times, the Wild West, and the jungle. And to be honest, when I first heard them, particular when I first heard subjects sort of use, you know, use these terms, especially the Wild West, I probably felt a little inwardly eye-rolly about it. You know, it's a, a Silicon Valley cliche, a tech industry cliche to describe a quickly growing 
messy and unregulated space as, as the Wild West. Um, but I came to believe two things that one, that each of these metaphors uh, was describing something sort of important and salient about the experience of being on Amazon at that time. Uh, and two, that actually the kind of abrupt breaks between these periods, and I found that sellers who had very different biographies and lived in very different places generally concurred, you know, about when the breaks between these periods were. I came to think that that itself was a sort of significant finding, right? That Amazon marketplace sort of shifts dramatically and abruptly at these particular moments in reaction to policy and other decisions that Amazon makes. Um, to put it concisely, the first era that uh, relatively few people I interviewed had been active in because it was a long time ago, but the folks who called themselves old timers uh, generally were talking about selling between the year 2000 when Amazon opened its marketplace to third parties. You know, basically, I sometimes say they grafted an eBay onto a Walmart or something, but added this uh, third party platform dimension to their retail business. In that era, what Amazon offered sellers was basically just an online catalog uh, and subjects described to me, you know, faxing Amazon to apply to sell through it, giving Amazon their cut. And then, you know, every day or a couple of days or week, or whatever it was, Amazon would send them orders with the names and addresses of the customers and they would mail them off. Um, and so in that era, people who got into it were mostly people with pre-existing a small business experience. They had to have all their sourcing and their own uh, logistics and so on. The second era, the Wild West that people spoke about really started around the year 2010, uh, shortly after introducing the Prime program or subscription for, for customers in 2006, 2007. Amazon undertook this kind of renovation of the third-party marketplace uh, and importantly opened their warehousing and fulfillment or logistics services to third-party sellers. And what that meant uh, was that, you know, whereas previously, if I, Moira, had wanted to start a scissor company, I'm just looking at my desk, um, I would have had to, you know, get my scissors, store my scissors, ship them to my customers, and so on, even through Amazon, starting in the late 2010s. And really, by 2010, they launched this program called Fulfillment by Amazon, uh, that sellers could use paying Amazon to do those things for them as a service. Uh, and that also became obligatory in most cases to be eligible for prime, uh, for prime shipping. So sellers were strongly incentivized, uh, if not practically required to, to use that. Um, and so in practice, what this meant was it really lowered the barrier to entry, uh, for starting one of these Amazon businesses and all the people I spoke to who were active in that era described it as a kind of period of chaotic <laughs> growth. The third phase, which again, people pretty uniformly identified as starting around 2015, 2016, uh, people described as the jungle. It's funny, it was the jungle, the, the use of this phrase, the jungle, that made me think a little bit harder because on its own, I thought, you know, Wild West, whatever, every tech, tech guy says that. But I, I realized over time that this metaphor of the jungle was really talking about two things. It was talking about the marketplace getting denser and more complicated, sort of less the open terrain where you could scale in a very rapid way, relatively easily, as some people did in the Wild West period. Um, much more competitive, much trickier in terms of all sorts of policies and regulations and programs. And 
I realized after spending some time doing these interviews that the main causal factor, the main thing that had changed was that Amazon opened their global, you know, opened their marketplace in the US globally. I believe should fact check this, but I think there are 182 countries that are currently eligible where people almost all of them. (laughs) Yeah. I could be wrong about that. There are also 132 customs free zone. So maybe I'm making up that number. Don't quote the 182. But many, many, many countries are eligible to sell. In practice, in practice, only China matters outside the US. 50% of all sales to the US marketplace. So through all third-party sales through Amazon.com come directly from China. Amazon has tried uh, to recruit merchants, particularly in South Asia and increasingly in Latin America, especially in Mexico, to sell through the platform, especially in light of uh sort of growing geopolitical tensions and instability between the U.S. and China. But in practice, for better and worse, what opening the platform globally meant was a flood of Chinese manufacturers and small capitalists coming coming onto the marketplace. And that changed the dynamics dramatically in ways that everyone I spoke to uh, pretty much recognized uh, and saw as impacting their, their daily life on the Chinese side too, of course. Not that there's no danger in the Wild West, but I do associate it with wide open spaces. But in the jungle, there's kind of a kill or be killed sort of mentality, Um, you know, danger around every, you know, uh, bush, that kind of thing. You describe how essentially the individuals who are in the jungle are essentially taking on the mindset of Amazon itself. They're they're Mm -hmm. to some extent kind of reading in Amazon's imperatives and then building that logic into their businesses. Mm. Um, Can you just explain how that works? Yeah, for sure. And as you were talking, I remember the second thing I meant to say about the jungle, because I, you know, I take these sort of forms of lore and these metaphors people use to speak about their lives really, I mean, I take them really seriously and try to think with them. And I remember I was speaking with two data and society colleagues, uh, Rigoberto Lara Guzman and Ranjit Singh, who's an anthropologist, about these metaphors of the Wild West and the jungle. And they said precisely what you did. They said, you know, like, how atmospherically is the Wild West different from the jungle? Well, it's darker, it's denser, maybe you need a guide. Uh, So that really resonates. The other thing I realized that this language of the jungle reflects, or that I believe it reflects, uh, is the huge growth in the mid to late 2010s of sort of whole industry of consultants and firms providing software and services to Amazon sellers specifically, all of whom try to brand, or most of whom I should say, try to brand themselves using the imagery of the Amazon in the jungle, you know, Amazon's branding. Uh, So in a way, I feel like it also bespeaks the rise of this influencer and service culture uh, that was trying, that promises whether or not truthfully or accurately to help sellers navigate this kind of scary terrain. In terms of businesses becoming like mini Amazons, uh, this is one of the things that really interested me, right? Um, And if I can answer in a slightly academic way, since this is sort of an expert audience, one of the things that really fascinated me and fascinates me about the third-party sellers, right, is that they are small businesses. Uh, They're registered as small businesses. A lot of the people who get into it do so because they want a kind of independence and autonomy that we associate with entrepreneurship in the U.S. And there's a long, uh, long tradition in our sort of political imaginary and life of thinking about entrepreneurship and small business that way. 
Uh, but in practice, particularly because Amazon is so dominant in e-commerce, most of these sellers are selling the vast majority of what they sell through Amazon, you know, primarily, if not exclusively through Amazon. I think of the 40-something people I interviewed for this study, I one person I interviewed sold only 60-something percent did only 60 something percent of his revenues through Amazon, but most people were like eight in the nineties percentages. So anyway, these are really Amazon native businesses. And that was another kind of surprise to me, which was perhaps naive. When I started the research, I thought I'd be meeting, you know, small business owners who used Amazon to quote unquote, get online. Everyone, I'm trying to think if there's a single exception. I think every single person I spoke to who had a reasonably successful Amazon business over time had invented a sort of Amazon native business specifically designed to perform to Amazon's metrics and algorithmic incentives and so on. Um, And sometimes, as you were suggesting in the question, the forms this took um, really made these small businesses look like mini Amazons. And that was kind of a metaphor that people use jokingly, for instance, describing how they're houses and cars and apartments and garages got filled with stuff. You know how they'd like turn their living space into a mini fulfillment center. Or um, I always remember interviewing a Chinese seller from Shandong province uh, who was speaking about reading these books in, in Mandarin that were many of which were published in the 2010s about how to get rich selling on Amazon, all of which were saying to imitate Amazon's tactics of selling at a loss for the first month, uh, for six months to gain search ranking. Uh, and so on. And so sellers have to really imitate Amazon's behaviors in certain ways and certainly perform to to Amazon's metrics and algorithms. And in that sense, I think, you know, there's a big conversation about how folks like ride hailing drivers and delivery workers have been misclassified as entrepreneurs when really they're more like workers or employees. Um, I think in a certain sense, I don't think the Amazon businesses are quite the same as, uh, you know, as driving an Uber or driving for Uber or Lyft. But I do think there are some similar dynamics in terms of like gigification and forms of algorithmic control that significantly undermine the autonomy that we associate with entrepreneurship. And that's part of why we valorize entrepreneurship in the US and China too, by the way. But yeah. You say that these businesses are becoming kind of less like mom and pops and maybe look a little more like day trading. Almost seems to me like that's the right metaphor, but maybe the other one would be that they're, you know, they're in a a casino that does pay out, but, you know, to some extent they're trying to game the different dynamics, trying to make a buck, but sort of seems like the house always wins. Totally. And both the day trading, it's funny, the day trading metaphor is one that I think I highlighted in the report two different, at least two different people I interviewed explicitly used that metaphor and made that comparison saying, you know, and one person who used it was someone who had had a long history in retail before getting into Amazon selling. But, um, you know, two different people said to me, basically, it's less like running a corner store or a mom and pop than like day trading. It's all about uh, recognizing risk and risk and seizing short windows of opportunity on this global marketplace that you encounter through screens. Um the casino metaphor was also one. It's funny, I didn't highlight it in the report, I realized, but that came up a lot. Uh, and during COVID, this is a bit of a slant, and I don't um, I don't think I talk about this very much in the report, but it's something I'm looking at in the longer project I'm doing on e-commerce. During COVID, 
this whole industry of what basically private equity funds or investment funds that call themselves aggregators came up out of nowhere, raising capital to buy Amazon businesses. Uh, I was just looking at these figures today, but uh, one of them here in Boston, which has since basically disappeared, raised a billion, um, nearly a billion dollars. And there's, of, so it's these really big um, kind of VCs for, I mean, they're not VCs. Um, yeah, private equity firms for Amazon brands kind of emerged out of nowhere and became a multi-billion dollar industry during the pandemic. And that was, so that's in the time period when I'm conducting my interviews and constantly people I spoke to use the metaphor of wanting to take money off the table or get out of the casino uh, and sell to one of these aggregators before their luck ran out. Because even very successful sellers, I think, have for the most part, a pretty acute awareness that basically any time Amazon could copy their product, change some rule, a manufacturer, some other manufacturer could figure out a way to make their product cheaper uh, and so on. So this sense of like time boundness and the house always wins definitely came out in this way of talking about risk and getting money off the table. Can I ask you, did you observe or hear about any kind of defensive behaviors that people had to try to hide from Amazon somehow or keep Amazon from noticing their success? Uh, were they at all aware of, you know, the possibility that they might get essentially pushed out of the casino at some point? Yeah, it's a great question. I don't know if this is quite what you're getting at, but one thing that I expected going into the study, again, not having a background in e-commerce or spoken to third-party sellers before, was that I would hear a lot about fears of Amazon, like copying products or stealing suppliers, because that's something that I think comes up a lot in the public discourse around antitrust, uh, just because it's so egregious. I actually don't think I ever once heard, and once, I can think of one person who like independently brought up that possibility or voluntarily brought it up. And when I, I sometimes would ask people about whether that was something they worried about, and almost everyone I can remember asking about that said something to the effect of, well, that can always happen. Like, well, of course, that's a given. Of course, that can happen. Um, it's funny. They didn't. Another one of these recurring metaphors was the sandbox. Many people said, like, let's their sandbox. You know, you're playing mm. box. Um, so interestingly to me, people seem to fear that to an extent, but sort of take it for granted. And then the things that they were more concerned about or defensive about were competition, either, you know, fair competition or abusive behavior by competitors, which Amazon, they often feared would not effectively govern or prevent. Uh, and I could offer a million examples of this kind of uh, abuse tactics. And then the other thing people really worried about were unfair suspensions uh, or, you know, getting their account or their or their product blacklisted or suspended in ways that I think we're used to thinking about for social media. Like we've all heard stories of Twitter accounts that are unfairly banned or, you know, a Facebook account gets brigaded and taken down unfairly. But these kinds of things happen on Amazon Marketplace too, these sort of familiar platform dynamics. And in a way they feel lower stakes perhaps, because, you know, it's not the alt-right or neo-Nazis brigading an activist. But on the other hand, it's, you know, people's entire livelihoods and many people's livelihoods in some case. Um, I've spoken to multiple sellers who have lost over $1 million in revenue while trying to reach a human at Amazon who could explain to them what happened. Wow. 
And keep in mind, while while they're while they're losing that money and waiting, their inventory is in Amazon warehouses. They can't access it. Their search rank, which is basically their brand, right? Like if you think about what a brand is in the age of Amazon, it's a position in Amazon search results, basically, uh, is plummeting. Uh, and so again, you know, maybe we're talking about like dog collars and bath gel. So it seems less exciting than Nazi memes. But then on the other hand, it's people's entire lives. There is a broader intellectual project obviously going on right now that's trying to redefine monopoly harms, mm -hmm. rethink antitrust, uh, rethink, you know, how to think about these mega platforms, uh, the sort of, you know, network effects and other kind of implications of platformization. You introduced this idea of trickle down monopoly. Mm -hmm. um, I want to kind of ask you two questions in one, which is... Mm -hmm. How do you see your work fitting into this intellectual project? And what is trickle-down monopoly? I'll answer those questions in reverse order, if it's okay. It's funny, trickle-down monopoly was a phrase that just struck me talking to sellers. And then I sort of tested it out with some of them and they liked it and thought it was accurate. And, and I went with it. I use this concept of trickle-down monopoly to try to name this fundamental ambivalence of the seller position. And part of what interests me about them is their position is really ambivalent because in a way they stand to gain a lot from Amazon's monopoly. But the promise that Amazon holds out to the seller, right, is that they can grab their piece of Amazon's huge market share or Amazon's growth. Uh, and to bring it back to the colonial metaphors, that was part of what struck me about those two, right, is like the promise of the, the Wild West or the jungle is that the you know, settler colonialists or conquistador, whoever gets to go grab their piece uh, of, of this new terrain being opened up. At the same time, it struck me that many of the people I spoke to sort of saw Amazon itself as like the crown or the state that could arbitrarily take things mm -hmm. away, or change things in the background. So yeah. anyway, the trickle-down monopoly concept I use to refer to the way that Amazon, because of its huge market power, holds forth this promise of participating in its growth and wealth at the same time uh, that it renders, you know, people don't really, mostly, mostly doesn't really work. Um, and it renders, it renders the small businesses dependent on it incredibly vulnerable to its changing whims and imperatives. In terms of the broader intellectual project, I think I'm broadly sympathetic, I mean, very sympathetic to it, um, or uh, agree with a lot of, of the criticisms that folks like FPC Chair Lena Khan or scholars like Sabil Rahman uh, and Tim Wu have made about how, you know, post-Borkian definitions of monopoly that look at the problem exclusively through rising consumer prices can't capture the kind of power that a firm like Amazon exercises. Uh, I guess, I probably tend to see the problem based on my work and my own orientation. Perhaps maybe it's the same the same conclusion, but from a slightly different angle in terms of just the level of power that firms exercise over people's lives and livelihoods. Maybe it is an exact agreement. I don't know. Um, but that rather than focus so much on the benefits of competition, I'm probably coming from a place of thinking that, um, you know, that it is a problem in a democracy to have individual firms exercise so much power over people's lives, livelihoods, and the political process. And one other point I want to make, I tried to make a bit in the report, and I'm looking at in my ongoing research, 
is also that, you know, entrepreneurship is a state project. We often think of these abuses to sellers as like only consequential for those sellers or for those businesses. But small business is something the U.S. invests in through low interest rate loans and tax tax breaks and subsidies in some places. It's been a central way that we've thought, you know, as a country in the past 50 or so years about major part of our identity, right? I mean, that's yeah. Who, and so I know. think that it's like, to the extent there's a new study, um, someone called Rosas Kaziukanas just published this week uh, that got some attention, where he, by looking at the PL statements of all these businesses that share that shared their PLs with them, because he's really respected in the space, found that the average Amazon seller pays upwards of 50% of every sale to Amazon which to me at least is a shockingly high number. Like the most recent robust number I'd heard for that was from a few years ago and was more like 34, 35%. But to the extent that small business is a state project, uh, public resources go towards supporting small businesses. Uh, I think it's important to recognize that if Amazon is increasingly taking, you know, 50, 55% of a piece of every sale a small business makes, that's a matter of public interest and not just not just to the sellers. Well, I will look forward to the next result of your continued you know, work on this subject. And oh, thank I you. appreciate this report. And I appreciate you talking to me today. Thanks so much for having me on and for the interest, your interest in the work. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my guest. Thanks to Brian Jones, my co-founder. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.